Welcome to Good People, Cool Things, the podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. I'm your host, Joey Held, and today's guest is Brian Sakine, who may be the only fire-spinning sushi chef in the entire world. I finally got that right. You're going to hear me mess it up many times in the episode. Fire-spinning sushi chef, Brian Sakine. And he is chatting all about fire spinning, sushi, and a whole lot more, including running, a business creating courses that had been in person and shifting them onto online courses, and some of the important sustainability about sushi and food preparation that we're probably not given enough thought to, and we certainly should be. If you'd like to support Good People Cool Things, you can do so in a couple of different ways. Holler at the shop, goodpeoplecoolthings.com slash shop. Buy yourself some nice merch. A nice coffee mug. Coffee mug getting rave reviews, by the way. The everything will be okay so mug. It is delicious. Well, the mug itself is not delicious, but whatever you put in it will be delicious. And who knows? Maybe if you have a taste for glass, you might enjoy it as well. You can also reach out to the show on Facebook or Twitter at GPCT Podcast. In the meantime, I hope you have brought your appetite because we are talking about sushi. Now to start. It's the old cliched elevator pitch, but this is a new thing we're trying, where in addition to your elevator pitch about yourself, I'd like you to describe the elevator that we are on while you are giving this pitch. I always like to joke that it it starts off with uh, something funny. Like, I usually tell people I do a lot of weird things for money, and that either gets a really strange look, or they start asking a lot of questions about it. And so... Uh, Either way, I usually lead into saying I'm a fire-spinning sushi chef, and that also kind of gets people's attention. And I tell them that I started learning how to make sushi when I was younger and decided to turn that into a career outside of a restaurant. And then later on, I discovered fire-spinning as a hobby and decided to integrate that into a side business as well. And so because both industries thought it was particularly interesting that I did the other, I decided to combine the two. And while I do spend about 25% of my time each week focusing on sushi stuff, I still do about 10% in performing or fire spinning. And then the rest of the amount of time, I am a full-time dad and partner and web developer. And all the while going through this elevator pitch, I envision that we are standing in an elevator with one of those cool curved glass windows that lets you see out into the lobby and that we're going up about 50 stories. So the longer we're in the elevator, the higher up we go, the smaller the lobby gets and the greater the view becomes. So I'd love to dive a little more into all of your background there because you did kind of touch on it a little bit, but like, take us back to the first time. Do you remember the first time you tried sushi? Oh man, honestly, not very well. (laughs) I think I was pretty young. Um, I am half Japanese, so. I've been eating Japanese food for a long time. And so I think my first time eating sushi, I think my, I was probably about 10 or so. And I think my initial impression was that I didn't understand why it tasted like vinegar, but (laughs) I liked it. And so I continued to try like different types of sushi. And as I continued to venture out, uh, the taste of vinegar became much more subtle. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I, as I was asking that, I was like, I don't know if I could tell you when I first tried sushi or really any food. <laughs> I, I just know what I like. And 
maybe maybe sometime I can get there. Um, so did you have a moment then where you were like, okay, you you've tried it, you like it now? Presumably, you still like you do still enjoy it, and you're not just teaching people about sushi. <laughs> um, was there a moment where you're like, oh, I can take this from something that I like and you know have an interest in? Uh, eating it and, you know, teaching others, did you have that aha moment or was it just kind of like gradually over time you had enough experiences where it was like, wait a minute, I should do something here? Yeah, I think when I initially got a job as a sushi chef, um, I wasn't like a raving fan of sushi. Like I'd had it a few times before, but I wouldn't say that, you know, if someone asked me like, what do you want to go eat dinner? I'd be like, oh, let's go get sushi. Like I'm really craving it. But after I started training to become a sushi chef, there were several points when I would see my mentors sort of creating a new recipe or creating a new sauce or a new combination of ingredients. And they would let all of us employees sample it. And going through that experience and then getting to do that myself sort of gave me the spark to pursue it more than just a day job because when I first started, I was just looking for a part-time job while in college. Mm -hmm. And when I started going through all of my training, I really started to fall in love with the process and fall in love with learning more. And the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know. And each individual facet of sushi as a cuisine became more and more interesting. So the deeper I got, the more in love I fell with the cuisine as a whole and the, and the art and the history and the culture behind it. And I think after about my first year, I decided that this was something more than just a day job and that it was something that I really could see myself doing for the rest of my life. That's fantastic. And yeah, I, I feel like a lot of uh, businesses kind of start like that almost of like, you don't really know that you're into it until you're getting into it. And you're like, wait a minute. This is pretty great. Oh, really? That's what that's what I've encountered, I feel like, with a lot of folks is like, I mean, I guess, like, thinking back to when you were a kid, I don't know, did people ever tell you, like, hey, I envisioned this for you, or, like, I can see you running your own business down the line, or was that never really something that, that crossed your mind when you were younger? <laughs> you know, I have had some people tell me that they thought I would go on to be some kind of performer, which I guess in some ways they were right. Yeah. <laughs> but there was at one point in high school, we were doing a fundraiser for a, a local club and we had to set up a booth and sell something to the students that came in. And it had to be like some sort of culturally relevant item. And at the time I lived in the middle of uh, Oklahoma and so there was no sushi restaurants in the town I grew up in, but I wanted to sell sushi. And so I made hot dog sushi, which sounds kind of terrible, but people were actually really into it. Uh, I, I'm going to need some more detail here on the hot dog sushi. <laughs> <laughs> so basically we had the vinegared rice and the seaweed. And on the inside, it was either a cooked hot dog or it was a piece of ham and a piece of cheese. And we rolled it up and then served it with ketchup or mustard. I'm on board with that. I think I, I mean, I also grew up in Chicago, so hot dogs. I I mean, putting ketchup on it. Most, uh, most Chicagoans will slap that dog right out of your hand and 
probably the role as well. I don't know. Maybe they'd be a little more, <laughs> a little more welcoming to that. I personally am fine with all condiments on on hot dogs. So maybe I've I have my uh, Chicago status revoked just from admitting that. But I think that sounds delightful. But I could also see why people are scared to try initially. But I imagine you've gotten good feedback from that. Yeah, yeah. But I think at that time in high school they said, you know, I think you could be like a, a business person or an entrepreneur. Nice, nice. And so how you, you, when we were initially talking, you said you think you're the world's only fire spinning sushi, sushi chef. Oh, that's hard to, it's hard to say all at once. Fire spinning sushi, sushi chef. I'll get it one of these times. And how did, how did that element come into it? And was it always something where you're like, yeah, let's, let's make this part of it. Or, or was that another kind of piece that you'd added on later? Oh, that was something I added on way later. So when I was, I think, a few years out of college, and at this point, I I had started my sushi business and was teaching classes. One of the guys that I worked with in the restaurant was a part-time circus performer. And I had so many questions about, you know, that, that whole industry in general, because until then, I had sort of, I don't know, been... A little oblivious to the fact that circuses were still around. I thought that was like an old time thing and that, you know, we didn't, we didn't need circus performers anymore or something ridiculous like that. And so he told me about his experience learning how to juggle and riding a unicycle and spinning fire. And so I said, that sounds super fascinating. How, how did you learn how to spin fire? And he said, you know, we have a local meetup every Monday night at a park here in town. Why don't you come out and I can kind of show you you know, how we learn how to spin fire. I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I went out there and had my mind blown. And six months later, after going back every week, I decided to sort of learn more about it myself and practice spinning fire in different ways. And uh, one day that same friend came up and said, hey, I've got an extra ticket to this fire festival in Austin, Texas. Do you want to come with me to the, the festival? And I was like, whoa, like what, a, what is a fire festival? You know, that sounds a little dangerous. <laughs> and he told me it's basically a festival where people show up and they camp all weekend. And throughout the day, they have one hour workshops where they teach you how to spin fire in various ways, either through juggling or like twirling a hula hoop or spinning a staff. And that there were dozens of different ways to do it. So I said, yeah, I'd I'd be interested in going. And initially I thought I was just gonna take my camera down there and camp for a weekend and take photographs of people doing crazy circus stuff. But while I was there, I actually really became intrigued with the concept of spinning fire and ended up buying my very first fire staff and learning how to spin fire that weekend and then came back. And for me, it turned into a practice of what I like to call like moving meditation. So when I get home from the restaurant, if I felt stressed out or felt anxious or anything like that, I would just pick up my staff and spin it around. And it was a great way to get out of my head and back into my body. And to this day, it's still a practice that I do to kind of take the stress off. That is wonderful. I, a couple initial thoughts with, uh, when you said fire festival, I got real scared for a second about the, uh, the, I guess, infamous festival uh, of oh, yeah. Ja Rule and other folk fame. 
of uh, <laughs> just a, a which would have been a great story in and of itself, I think, too. If it was like, hey, I, I went to this festival, it was terrible, but I picked up fire spinning while I was there. It would have also been very good. <laughs> Secondly, as someone who's lived in Austin, Texas for over eight years now, I am ashamed to admit I've never even heard of such a festival here. So is this an annual Austin thing or do they travel around every year? Oh, yeah, it's an annual Austin thing. Oh, my goodness. I've been... Where have I been? <laughs> yeah, if you're interested in checking it out, I know a lot of friends in Austin that uh, still do fire performing and fire spinning. And the event is called Flow Storm. Okay. And so if you Google that, I'm Jotting sure you it can down. find it. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So do you combine the fire spinning with the, the sushi chef aspect of it? Or is that just a terrible idea? <laughs> As of today, I have yet to figure out how to spin <laughs> fire and roll sushi at the same time, because one is very fast paced and involves a lot of movement. And the other one is kind of slow and calm and methodical. So I honestly haven't put a lot of effort into it. But the reason why I introduced myself as a fire spinning sushi chef is because in certain crowds, you know, I tell people I'm a sushi chef. Like, for example, if I go to one of these fire festivals, which actually happen all over the country, you'd be surprised how many of them are out there. Because I thought it was just like a, an underground thing. But uh, it's definitely like a growing industry for sure. So I go to these festivals and people would say, what do you do for a living? And I'd say, I'm a sushi chef. And they're like, wow, that's so crazy. That's, that's insane. And then I'd go back to the restaurant and they'd say, what did you do this weekend? I said, well, I went to a festival and met a bunch of fire spinners. And they were like, wow, that's so crazy. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I should just combine those two. And when people ask you, like, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm the fire spinning sushi chef. And they're like, wow, that's extra crazy. But <laughs> it kind of came about because on social media, I started just with sushi content. You know, um, I didn't really want to have like a personal Instagram account. So I just set up a business Instagram account for the sushi stuff. And then I realized that if I wanted to promote the fire performing part, I would have to be on social media for that as well. And I thought, you know, I, I don't know that I have the motivation to keep up with multiple accounts for each platform, for each of the different things that I do. So I'm just going to combine them all into one. And so that's kind of where the whole fire spinning sushi chef thing really became more concrete in my mind is that, you know, I, I'm just going to have one social media platform and kind of share everything I do on it. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. Social media is just exhausting. And this is someone who's on it. Like, I'm on it a lot. And yes, it is just to try and... And I think that is something that a lot of uh, budding entrepreneurs can get caught up in. Is like, oh, I got to get gotta get on Facebook. Got to get on Twitter. Got to get on Instagram. Got to do Pinterest, YouTube, TikTok now. Although, yeah. who knows how long it'll be, be here in the States. But uh, <laughs> like, no, you don't have to do all that. You Like, you can pick one platform or you have in your case one account that covers everything there but i do think that's a good point that you brought up of having it as a business account because even if you're like not if you don't envision yourself as a business owner right now like the insights that you get from it are so much further than your personal account will give you that you can start shaping the types of stuff you're offering the type of content you're sharing and it's like it's essentially free product testing and like focus groups by having this out on the internet. So I think that's a very good distinction that you 
it sounds like you made pretty early on to to make that the business account instead of a personal one. Thanks. Yeah, I, I definitely thought that the insights were the more valuable, you know, piece of it. So I didn't really see the point in having a personal and a business. So I just started off with a business one. Excellent. Skipping the steps of sharing uh, <laughs> two two years worth of like plates um, of of. Well, I guess for for your case, like seeing sushi would be great. So it's not. Uh, it's not totally out of the line of how some people use Instagram. Anyway, I still remember when I first got onto Instagram, I was just like, man, I do not understand this. Like, why? Yeah. Why would I care about my friend's, like, Sprite can that he just posted? <laughs> <laughs> but now that's art, so it's all good. So it's all good. So one of uh, the things I like to ask entrepreneurs is, what's something that surprised you about running a business? I think one of the most surprising things is how difficult it is to like sell your services or your product to people. Initially, I thought it would be something that would be kind of easy to do because I find myself talking about whatever it is I'm passionate about pretty openly and freely. But for some reason, when I started thinking about it from the business perspective, everything kind of started to sound like a sales pitch to me. And I hated that. I did. I don't want to come across as being salesy or trying to convince someone to do something. So that was a, a big initial struggle. And the second thing I'd say would be a fear of being in front of a camera. Because if I'm in front of people, like on stage or in the sushi restaurant, I don't have any issues at all. But getting behind the camera and recording a video, you know, to me, that was so much more permanent. Like if you're live and you make a mistake, you fumble, you can recover. People will remember that part. They'll just remember the good parts. But if it's a video, man, people can hit rewind. They could play it over and over again. They could harass you on YouTube for it. And so I thought that was a surprisingly difficult part about being in business too, because in today's modern age, you can't really go about business very much without having video. Now, it seems like social media wants video websites want video, everyone needs to have a YouTube channel, you know, and like, especially the things like TikTok, like you have to be in front of a camera. Yeah. And I think that's a very common fear there is, is that permanence of video. And you might, you know, you might have a great take where you nail everything and then you, you're looking at it and it's like, oh, I had, you know, a, a stain on my shirt or, so, or you know it's like something you didn't even consider yeah or there's like something going on in the background that you didn't notice and it's just like ah like it, it is a lot of additional consideration to think of but then you're right like that's just how people are digesting stuff now is they want to see a quick video instead of having to read through lines of text or like they're putting on a podcast to get their information because it is something you can do a little more passively while yeah, still retaining everything definitely. One of the other things that I liked on your website is you you quote yourself, which I am a big fan of here, of uh, keep it simple, keep it clean, keep it sustainable. <laughs> and I think sustainability is always a, a concern, or it should be a concern of a lot of different businesses. And I think, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, we're probably seeing uh, maybe some adjustments to that going on. But can you talk a little bit about why that's an important part of your brand? Yeah, Absolutely. So back in, I think it was about 2011, I realized that, you know, there was a term floating on the internet called sustainable sushi. And 
previously I had thought sustainability was more about like recycling and energy management and things like that. But it never occurred to me that sushi had a sustainable aspect to it as well. And especially because, you know, I live in central Oklahoma and so there's no water around us. You know, we don't get any of the seafood that we sell in a sushi restaurant anywhere remotely nearby. So it all has to be flown in and it has to be flash frozen, which is actually the best way to consume seafood. But the thing is, is that there's a huge concern with the ratio of the increase in popularity of sushi and the decrease in sea life populations. So through mass production or mass fishing, I guess I should say, we have been destroying a lot of the local ecology around and in the oceans, especially around the reefs. And uh, coastal communities have seen a drastic increase in pollution and decrease in the amount of fish that they can catch as smaller communities, but they've seen an increase in what commercial fishing is being able to produce. And so there's a lot of nonprofits out there that are closely monitoring the amount of pollution and waste that we are putting into the ocean, as well as, you know, organizations that are monitoring the populations of fish, especially the more deep sea predatory fish, which happen to be the most common in the sushi industry. So one of the things that really was harrowing for me to learn is that freshwater eel, or in the sushi industry, we call them unagi, is actually has decreased in their population by 80% in the past 20 years. Wow. And that's been almost exclusively attributed to the rise in sushi on a global level. So the issue with that is, you know, most people say, oh, well, freshwater eel are actually farmed. And that's true, but they're not bred in captivity. In fact, we don't know how eel breed, and we have never been able to breed eel in captivity. So what happens is that these huge commercial fishing vessels will go out and they will catch a bunch of baby eel and bring them inland to then raise on an aquaculture farm which is terrible for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, they are carnivorous creatures, so they need to eat anywhere between two and eight times their body weight in meat each day. Uh, two, they are very slippery, as you might you know, <laughs> guess, but they are also excellent escape artists. So periodically they have to administer uh, like antibiotics or antiviral medications into the water and they have to change that water out. So when they go to change the water, a lot of eels escape. And when they escape, they go into the local ecosystem and basically just wreak havoc. A lot of times, especially in like Vietnam, they have freshwater eel farms and a lot of those eels escape and end up getting into rice paddies and they eat all the fish in the rice paddies, destroy the rice paddies, and then end up dying in the rice paddies and then killing the whole crop as well. So they have kind of gotten a reputation of being invasive. And so across the board, eating eel is kind of a bad idea at this point. And we don't really have any uh, clear paths into how to make that better other than just teaching people like, hey, maybe skip the freshwater eel and try to eat something more sustainable like salmon, for example, or 
really any kind of whitefish or shellfish is a much more sustainable option than freshwater eel. I had the same mindset of view of like sustainability. Oh, it's like recycling and, you know, composting and stuff like that. But there's so much more to it. And I think it's awesome that you're addressing things like that. And maybe on a, on a related kind of note, how other ways have you had or what other ways have you had to kind of adjust your business, if at all, during the pandemic? Yeah. So in 2014, I started teaching live sushi classes where people would come into the restaurant that I used to work with and I would teach them in person how to roll sushi. So each person gets their own cutting board, their own knife, their own rolling mat. And we learn everything from how to make and season the sushi rice to slicing the fish, rolling everything together, cutting the rolls. And then finally, we get to eat everything that we make. And that has been uh, wildly rewarding for me personally and professionally. And as soon as COVID hit, that pretty much came to a screeching halt. So a lot of in-person gatherings were shut down. A lot of restaurants were losing a lot of income and uh, sushi restaurants were hit particularly hard because of that. Uh, a lot of the ingredients that sushi restaurants stock are very expensive and have a very short shelf life. So within a matter of a week or two, you know, sushi restaurants were losing hundreds if not thousands of dollars in just uh, inventory. And so people felt like if they were going to order takeout, you know, they were going to do it from a cheaper restaurant, you know, because sushi is not generally thought of as being like an essential food or like a staple food. So, you know, people would prefer to get something like a salad or a burger or something. And so really the live sushi classes were most heavily impacted for me. So I had to stop teaching those classes altogether. And it's probably been since March since I've taught a, a live sushi class, it can be early March. But I would say that's probably 60% of my business income comes from teaching in-person classes. So now I've had to sort of shift my business focus to doing more online. And while I do have a YouTube channel, I haven't been very good about being consistent about publishing that content. And I've been focusing a lot more on trying to get an online course up and going. Nice, nice. And what what tips do you have for putting an online course together? Because that's certainly a, a popular thing in the past few years of people saying like, hey, I know a lot about a topic and people have said you should teach this or you know, I'd, I'd love to share this with other people. So what kind of tips or challenges or anything have you encountered while you're putting your course together? Yeah, I would say the best tip that I have is to host and launch the course yourself and not with a large company that, you know, does courses already. There are a few of them out there that I have worked with that have been really, really great experiences, but there've also been a few that I couldn't recommend because, you know, they want you to put in all this work. They don't pay you anything up front. They host the whole online course themselves and then they sell it for like $30 a seat. And because it takes a high percentage of the cut, you don't really earn a lot of money off of that. And it feels like a lot of wasted time and effort, especially because generally speaking, doing online courses takes just a lot of work. And so what I'd recommend is that people start sooner rather than later and not to get too caught up in the perfectionist 
sort of mentality about it and to definitely launch it yourself. Yeah, it's a good reminder not to get, it's the old minimum viable product. Yeah. Right? You get you get it 80% right. And uh, you're, I mean, I assume you're offering, if people have follow-up questions, like you're you're offering support. If oh, yeah. They were like, "Hey, I, you know, I need, I need some more on this, this one lesson." Like, that's that's what the support is for. Like, yeah. A question again that I always like to ask everyone is a question that you wish you were asked more frequently. And I think you touched on this a little bit, but we can head back for a, a deeper dive here. Of how can I help my local sushi restaurants during COVID nineteen? I know there's a couple great ones around here in Austin. I even in Oklahoma, there's some. Even <laughs> when you're not by water, you can still get great yeah, sushi. Absolutely. So. How can people support their local restaurants? I think the best way to support local restaurants other than obviously ordering takeout from those restaurants is to call them and ask if you can if you can buy just fillets of fish and making sushi at home. Because I think a lot of sushi restaurants are very uncertain about how much fish and seafood they should order in. And so I think a great help to local sushi restaurants would be to you know, offer to buy some of those ingredients off of them and then learn how to make sushi at home. I think it's a really great activity to do while you're quarantining. And uh, I'm a little biased here, but I know a guy that puts a lot of great <laughs> online content out there on how to make sushi at home. I was going to say that sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> well, then I guess that that segues very nicely into our top three, which is the top three most important pieces of sushi equipment. So what should people... If they're going to start taking your courses, what do they need? Yeah, I think the single most important piece of equipment for making sushi at home is definitely a razor sharp knife. I think a lot of people, especially home cooks, sort of overlook the sharpness of their knives. You don't need to have like a super expensive knife to achieve a high level of sharpness, but you do need to make sure that whatever knives you are using are very, very sharp. So whether that's going out and buying a new knife that may retain its edge better than a you know the knives you currently have or whether that's taking the time to learn how to sharpen the knives you already have i think that's the single most important aspect the second most important piece of equipment i think would be the rolling mat so in order to make sushi rolls you have to have a little bamboo mat typically um, or you can get a plastic mat and you use that to actually roll the sushi roll together and that's super important to have, especially in order to achieve the consistent uh, thickness and the tightness of the roll so that when you go to cut your sushi roll, it doesn't just all fall apart. And then I'd say the third most important piece of equipment is something that not a lot of people have heard about before, but it's called a hangiri, and that's the Japanese term. But basically it's a flat bottomed wooden bowl that is used to season sushi rice. So the seasoning of the sushi rice is the single most important aspect of making sushi. And if you season your sushi rice in a wooden container, especially a flat bottomed container, then what happens is when that acidic seasoning hits the rice, if it isn't immediately absorbed by the rice, it soaks into the wood. Versus if you're using something like, a, say for example, a metal salad bowl, the acidity of the vinegar ends up pulling out whatever is soaked into that metal and it puts it into your rice. And so it's really important to season your sushi rice in something that is wooden. And it doesn't have to necessarily have the edges. A lot of people I know have wooden cutting boards and you can 
you can definitely season your sushi rice on a wooden cutting board. It's just you have to be more careful about not spilling it all over the place. But I would say that's the third most important. A lot of people think that having a rice cooker is essential for making sushi at home, and that's not necessarily true. It's nice to have, but I wouldn't say it's required at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm much more a fan of something that will prevent me from spilling my rice all over the place, which <laughs> I uh, yeah. certainly have done before with a rice cooker. <laughs> That's fantastic stuff. Brian, if people want to learn more about you, if they are interested in checking out the online course, they want to confirm all the equipment that they need to get, where can they find you? Yeah, they can find me anywhere on the internet by searching for Secrets of Sushi. And if they're interested in learning more about the sushi online course, they can find that at 30daysofsushi.com. Fantastic. Well, Brian, thank you so much for having on. This was great. And like, like I said at the start of this, you, I really should not record around dinner because now I'm just <laughs> so hungry thinking about all this great Man, sushi. Me too. Thank you so much for having me, though. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. And let's end as we always do with a corny joke, but I've even got a sushi-themed one. Oh, nice. How does Lady Gaga like her sushi? Oh, I have no idea. Raw, 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 raw. <laughs> Get after it today, people. Love it. I love it. <laughs>